quotes that have stood the test of time, uh, like the one we're going to talk about here. Uh, we'll introduce it briefly, and I'll connect it, connect it to our text. But I'm confident that in some form or fashion, what I'm about to share with you, you have heard at some point. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Any of you ever heard that, that statement or at least a segment of it from someplace? Anybody know where, the, where it's most commonly quoted? Okay, there we go. That's actually in my talk this morning. Spider-Man. Somebody is still acting like they're 12 up in this room. I don't know who it is, but uh, Spider-Man, absolutely. So lots of, lots of debate on the origin of that quote, okay? Depending on who you're talking to, you're likely to get a different opinion as to who first said it. Uh, some say that it was kind of coined in the early writings of the Greek philosophers, and that's, there's probably some truth to that. I think you can make a strong case for Jesus uh, coining it. In Luke 12, 48, he says it in a bit of a different way, but the idea is the same. To those who have been given much, uh, much more will be asked of them. There's this idea of what you receive having a direct correlation to what you give. And most recently, I think the, the, the most common one, even more common than the Greek philosophers, would be the uh, blockbuster Spider-Man films uh, that Tobey Maguire were a part of, the ones that preceded this new era that had come up. And it was in that film that the great modern-day poet and resident theologian Uncle Ben told uh, his, uh, Uncle Ben was laying kind of on the street dying, obviously, and he told Peter Parker just before he was about to become Spider-Man that before, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. He was about to get a gift in life and he needed to act accordingly with it. So it's very common wisdom in our world. And today we're going to finish our Easter series about the cross by looking at Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. And although the Apostle Paul doesn't use that quote directly, the principle in what we're going to study today is clearly applied when it comes to this teaching. And this is an idea that we have talked about before. It is an idea that is very powerful, and it is an idea that needs to be essential to our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. What we're going to look at today is how the gift of God's gospel of grace which we celebrated in a very mighty way last week, okay, is meant to shape a certain type of lifestyle. There is a great gift God gives us, and with that gift comes a great responsibility. And the truth we've been dwelling on throughout this Easter season is that God's gospel of grace given to us on the cross, we looked at five different things, you might say, that the cross teaches us. The gift of God's gospel of grace is, is a great power. And it's meant to bring about real and lasting life change in our lives. If we're willing to receive that, if we're willing to look to the Father in heaven and, and demystify the cross, we're going to look at that here in a moment, what happens is, is we get to know God in very powerful ways. And in knowing God in very powerful ways, that begins to shape and reshape who we are. And so even though Easter Day is over, I hope to encourage you today to remember that what Easter brought is meant to be lived out in every day of your life. Easter is a gift, much like the birth of Jesus. And it is not just a one-time gift. It's a gift that if you will press into it, you will find has the ability to keep on giving. And so in light of this great reality, Paul is clear that the recipients of God's grace have also been given a great responsibility with it. And in his writings, he points out a lot of things. We read almost 13 verses this morning, and we will not study them all. But there are two driving ideas in those verses that we're going to look at. I wanted the whole text read just so that you had the context of what Paul was saying. The first is this, that the gift of God's grace should move you and I to really want to know God. That's the whole point of what he's saying, is that God, God's mystery has been revealed in Jesus. And the revelation of mystery simply means that we get to know God. And the second is that we minister now on behalf of God because of that. And so let's begin by looking at this first idea. The cross shows us God doesn't want to remain a mystery to you. He really wants you to know him. This is the point of Easter. It is the point of the incarnation. And it is now the point of the, 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 the massive amount of times that span between the Christian holy days, right? That God has made himself known to the world. 
And because of that, there's an implication, a very strong one. We have the ability to know God. Ephesians 3, 2 through 4. Paul says this, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. God gives it to him to spread to the world. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So as is the case with Paul in this series in Philippians, this is kind of a, it's an ancillary text that really supplements our teaching in Philippians well about us knowing the power of who Jesus is. Here we see once again, Paul is at a place in his life where God's worked in his life in a very important way. Something very real has happened to him. And because of that realness, the validity of the way God has worked in him, he begins working in other people's lives. Now, in other words, it's sort of like what has happened to him is too good to keep in him. And he is compelled then to help others know God. And so here Paul tells us that God has revealed the mystery of himself to the world through the life and teachings of Jesus. The mystery of Christ was revealed last week. That's what we celebrated. That, that God has come, that God has died for us, and through his life, his teachings, his death, burial, and resurrection, God's communicating something to us. And so before we proceed, I need to point something out. The word mystery, like so many of these other powerful words in the scripture, oftentimes they have a, a different context or a, a different me meaning. Sometimes it's a radically different meaning. Other times it's just the way our culture might interpret a word today is very different than the way it was interpreted, in this case, almost two, a little over 2,000 years ago. Like so many words in the Bible, the way we use this word is, is different from the original Greek language. It's common in one way, but very different in another. In modern English, a mystery is typically used to describe something dark and obscure. Something that is secret or puzzling, something that is inexplicable, maybe even incomprehensible. It's like there is something out there that we, we, we would like to know, but we just really cannot know. In the Greek, however, there's a subtle difference to this word. A mystery is still a secret. There is still something unknowable, you might say. But it's, the, the difference here is that it's, a, it's an accessible secret, meaning that anybody who wants to know what it is can. And the writing here should make sense because Paul is using the word understanding and mystery in the same sentence. This isn't a mystery meaning we can never know it. It's a mystery meaning that there's somewhat of a distinction we have to know about the mystery if we do want to know it. And this distinction is important because it shows us even though God had every right to remain a distant and holy mystery to us, like removed from us. We talked about this last week, right? Is God your savior or your watchmaker? Is he a guy who sets your life in motion and then lets, lets you work it out on your own, hope to see you one day down the road? Or is God deeply and intimately engaged in your life? He's not a mystery in this sense when it comes to relationship. He much preferred to be a knowable, relational God with all of humanity. And that's a very big way of saying with, with you and I, if you want to know this mystery, you can know it. And teachings like this show us that in God's grace, God wants us to know and to experience him. This is another hallmark distinction that separates Christianity from all other religions. There are lots of claims in the world religions today, okay, in the great religions of the world. But they all are very different in this one way. There's a commonality in them that doesn't exist in the Christian faith. In a lot of the world religions today, or even in personal spirituality, what tends to happen is people are relating to something. And most often what happens is there is some select group of people. They might be spiritually elite, a small cohort of people. It might actually be a single person, an individual person who spends their days trying to unlock the mysteries of their faith in their own strength. If you look at the Eastern religions, they are very much defined this way. 
it's, it's kind of a paradox of sorts, but the general idea is that to, to really free yourself, you have to like know nothing. You have to get to this place like a nirvana where, where your head is empty, okay? And so what happens is that's considered like super enlightened. And it's only a very small handful of people that can ever know the reality of that, that truth and that worldview. It's super exclusive, which is funny because Christianity is often rendered as a, an antiquated exclusive faith. But passages like this show us that that's quite the opposite. There is an exclusivity in the sense that there is a truth we must know. But it is a truth that God is, makes available to us. And it is a truth that he actually will empower us to understand if we pursue him. What happens here is people find their own faith. In order to find their own meaning in life, they have to follow something. And most often what it is, is some adherence to a, a rigid set of rules. Or an impersonal teacher or deity who is more of an enigma than a person. And consequently, that type of faith, that type of religion, causes you to have more of a relationship with the thing, the teachings, whatever it is that you're supposed to get to know, as opposed to the person behind what you're supposed to know in the Christian faith. There are teachings in Christianity without question, but the teachings are not an end in and of themselves. The teachings are meant to lead you to the goodness and the grace of the cross in Jesus. They're revealed. So on the contrary... In Christianity, there are no secret mysteries reserved for a spiritual elite. Rather, God is literally saying, my, my administration, my mystery is now made known to the world. I'm an open book. And if you want to know me, you can know me. Because the mystery has been revealed in Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. You can see me now. You can know me now. You can touch me now. You can experience me now. Paul tells us, God shouldn't be a mystery to you or to me because he wants to make himself known to you and me in very real ways. So think about this. One of the major themes we focused on this Easter season in Jesus is that we are offered this unrivaled meaning in life because we now have this direct access to God, the source of all life. We talked about his love. We talked about his, his paternal presence in his life. All of these are revealing that God has something he wants to reveal to us, something he wants to be for us. And this is the mystery God wants us to personally understand and experience. Key, key connection there. It's not just the knowledge of these ideas. It's actually the knowledge of these ideas so deep in our hearts that it begins to reshape our lives. The cross is the instrument that lights up the mystery of who God is, of how he cares for us and what he expects from us. In fact, later on, we won't look at this today, but I want to touch on it since it was read. In verses 12 through 13, Paul tells us that every person who is in Jesus now has the ability to approach God with an unrivaled freedom and confidence. Unrivaled freedom and confidence. You get to approach him like you do your, your brother or your sister or someone whom you deeply love. God is that accessible and available to you. Unlike any other time in history, God has given us, the people of God in the New Testament, the ability to be bold in our faith with him, to be honest with him, to be unashamed with him. We can approach him at any time and in any place with any issue because he is that near and available to us. And when we take advantage of this privilege, he promises to bathe us in his grace, to continue to, to make the, whatever is left mysterious in our lives about him, his commitment to us is to keep revealing to us who he is. And that's how you grow in God. The more you know who God is and experience who God is, the more you become like God, one of the points of our talks prior. God loves us, shows us grace, forgives us our sin. He offers us peace in the present circumstances of life. He gives us a concrete hope for the future. When we draw near to him, he reminds our hearts that, that our ultimate identity and worth is no longer based on circumstances, cruel and shifting as they can be at times, your job, your bank account, your health, 
the opinions of others, whatever they are, those things are no longer meant to make you something. They are things in your life, that's for sure. They have the ability to shape you maybe to a certain degree, but they are not meant to define your ultimate identity. Rather, your ultimate identity is now found in this unchanging love that God has for us in Jesus. It is a love that says no person or circumstance has the power to rob you and I of that peace and hope in life. It just can't happen. And all of these statements I'm making, the, the practical application of them, are deeply connected to knowing God vibrantly. Recognizing he is a great gift to us. And he is a gift that is, it's, he's meant to be known. Now if you're a thinker, and many of you are, this is going to lead you to a pretty natural question. A logical question, we might say. How do we get to the place in life where we sense the reality of those promises? In other words, how does this idea become real to me? Well, the answer is given to us by way of an important implication in these verses. It's not a silver bullet, but you might consider it to be a very large bullet in the way that we answer this question. And it is going to require us to do something. Because God is saying, if you really want to know and to experience me like that, the ability to do so is literally at your fingertips, at my fingertips. And what, is, what should be at the end of our fingertips is in this book we call the Bible. The Scripture, the Holy Scripture. Now let me explain. As Paul was writing this 2,000-year-old letter to the Ephesian church, much like he's writing the letter to the Philippian church, about how God had revealed himself to the world through Jesus' life, teachings, death, and resurrection. Remember, this is all post-resurrection. This is all the faith processing itself after Jesus has returned to heaven. This is the faith in action. And Paul is recounting on a regular basis what God has done in his son. I, I wonder, and I'm going to make an assumption here, but little did he know that God was using him in such an, such an exponential way. I don't know that Paul fully grasped what he was writing was going to become a, a book of the holy canon that would shape God's people for millennia. But nonetheless, he was faithful to write what God was putting on his heart. What he's writing here is a section of the Bible. What we're reading is a section of the Bible. The mystery is revealed. The reason I can say this confidently to you is because we have a truth in the scripture. And this would be passed on to others for millennia with the goal of helping other people to really know these same truths. These words we study today are one of the main ways God says, I will demystify myself. And the word words, it's, it's just, it's almost too paltry to describe this. They are words, but they are words that are indwelled by the power and the presence of God. It is in these words that God begins to demystify himself and reveal himself to people like you and I. And so you see, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know the reality of these promises, then you have to know the book. At least you have to make an attempt to know the book. And that's about as straightforward a truth statement as they come. However... Here's the challenge with this. Even though God made a way for us to really know him, that's the whole point of this passage. Paul's saying, God gave this to me so I could tell you, so that at the end of the day, all this mystery could be understood. Even though God made a way for us to really know him through his word and light up the mystery of himself, many Christians still choose to live as if their faith is a mystery. This is where the cardinal contradiction is. This is where we might say the, the faith obstacle will be for some of us this morning. God says, I'm known, I'm knowable. But a lot of people intentionally choose to dwell in mystery. There's a crazy irony in this. Because on one hand, it's very common to hear a Christian say, and let me open this up a little more broadly. I've also talked to people, and I can also tell you, you know, I, I, had a, uh, I, became, I came to Christ in my mid-20s, and there was a, a very strong season in my life where uh, people were telling me that God was knowable, but I just didn't want to know the knowable God, Right. So while this truth is specifically pointed at those of us in Jesus this morning, there's a very strong application to every single person on the earth. 
If God says he's going to reveal himself, then what that means is at some point we'll have to wrestle with the fact of whether or not we actually want to know the God who tries to reveal himself to us. And so it's very common to hear Christians say things like what we're talking about. It's very common to hear Christians say they want to experience God in the ways that I just mentioned. You want peace. You want hope. You want joy. You want confidence. You want assurance. You want grace. We want these things. But it's also just as common to find out that one of the reasons we often do not experience those things is because we've totally disconnected ourselves from the primary way God has chosen to write those experiences on our hearts by speaking to us through his word. And I give you a an example of this. Think about it like this. Let's say uh, you have high cholesterol, all right? And you're, you go to your doctor because you realize that if you persist with this, it's, it's going to hurt you over time. And you go to your doctor and your doctor says, hey, I have, uh, you know, change your diet, exercise, all that good stuff. But he says, I, I have some medicine also that can help this. And, and what happens is, is you keep going back to the doctor and he keeps saying, hey, uh, I, th I think you need to take this. Your cholesterol is creeping up. But every time you go to the doctor and, and that is offered to you, you say, no, I don't really, I don't really want to do that. Now, in a, in a sane mind, we'd say that that's probably a little bit foolish. If there's a, a diagnosed issue, there's a desire in your heart to have better cholesterol and the solution is presented to you and you don't take advantage of it, we might say that's a little bit crazy. Now, let's take it a step further and say that you, in, in, this, this happens not just once, but you just keep making these doctor's appointments every six weeks. And you keep saying, hey, doc, uh, my cholesterol's high. And your doc keeps saying, well, I know, because you come in here telling me this, and it's not getting any better. And there's a course of action you have to apply to your life if you would like to see it get better. And then at the end of the meeting, you say, well, I appreciate the time, but I'm just not going to do that. I'll see you in six weeks. Right? What would happen here is at, at some point, the doctor would probably get a little frustrated. You'd have a stroke in like seven years. And, and there would be this great mystery that can be solved. But for whatever reason, there's a resistance to pursue the resolution. And this is how it is for some Christians, not all, but for some. And I think if we're going to be fair, we should say that this might not be our issue today, but at every, there's, these junctions exist in the Christian journey. There are times when God causes us to wrestle with things that are uncomfortable, that challenge us. Things, let's be frank, that we might, we might wish we could have some mysterious blessing. Like, oh, I wish I didn't know I was supposed to be generous. And I wish I didn't know I was supposed to be sacrificial with other people. I wish I didn't know I was supposed to lay my life down on an altar every day of my life for Jesus. Sometimes there's a bliss in not knowing those things. But it's an ignorant bliss because to not know those things means there are areas of Jesus' life that are still a mystery to us. And this is how it is for some Christians today. They know they're supposed to read the Bible, but they don't. And there's a growing number of authors and pastors, this one too, who are genuinely concerned about the number of believers in our culture who say they want to know God in a particular way of life or area of life, yet they minimally, if at all, act on that desire. It's sort of like the prescription is clear, but, but receiving it is, not, is just not happening. And what happens is they, they stop worshiping God. They don't spend time with him. They walk away from these great promises the cross shows us. And ultimately, it's sort of as, as if they want to remain living in a mystery. Paul says it's revealed, and they say, no, I'm going to turn my eyes. I don't want to see the revelation yet. Now, you might recall a sermon I preached a while back that highlighted what I call the unhealthy trinity of actions, usually found in a person's life that wants to experience God's promises but can't seem to, that wants to know God but really can't seem to. They are disconnected from the word, disconnected from prayer, and disconnected from their church family. Those are the three main ways God is going to show himself to you. And he uses them all in different ways, and there are different emphasis points through them in life. But at the end of the day, those three areas are the way that God continually reveals the mystery to us. We're studying his word, right? 
we're, we're talking about uh, the importance of speaking and communicating to God, which is what prayer is. And Paul's writing to a church. He's encouraging a church body to, to, to basically support each other in this venture. Those three, three things need to be present in our lives if we want to experience health in this area. And so today, we'll kind of close this idea by saying, if you feel like you're living without the power of the cross in your life, if Easter really is just a one-week you know, thing, but you can't seem to press into the, the, the reality of that for the rest of your days, ask yourself, how are you doing in those three areas? Because the gift of God's grace, right? Easter, the holiday is over. But what Easter means is not. In fact, for the first century world, these promises were just beginning. They were about to come in touch with these ideas and truths in ways they had never experienced before. The gift of God's Easter grace says God wants you to know him and to experience him in a powerful way. And if you're not, you have to be honest enough to ask the question why. You've got to put the mystery on, on the table and start trying to sort out why it is still a mystery. Because God doesn't want to be a mystery to you. He wants you to take full advantage of his ability to be known. And if you will take advantage of that, you will more fully appreciate what Paul is talking about here. The revealed gift of his grace. And you will very likely, the foundation of what I'm about to say is built on what I'm saying here. You will very likely begin to understand the second responsibility that Paul says must be present in our lives. If you truly understand this gift, it starts shaping the way you live. This leads me to the second truth that Paul teaches us this morning. The cross shows us that God wants to be known. And secondly, the cross shows us every person in Jesus should desire to become a minister of the gospel. Every single person in Jesus should desire to become a minister of the gospel. Ephesians 3, 7 through 9. I became a servant or minister, depending on the translation you have. That's kind of an interchangeable word. Uh, it communicates the same idea. Certain translations went one way or the other. I don't want to split hairs on the word. I just want you to know that the, the idea of servant or minister is talking about the same thing here. So I put or minister in case you were reading a different translation than the one we were using. I became a servant or minister of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. And although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Look at the contrast in these words. A mystery made plain. Like a mystery made so obvious. It's sort of like, how God did we miss this? Made plain to everyone. The administration of this, uh, excuse me, everyone, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now, verse 7 explicitly teaches us that a sign that you really know God is when you begin to see yourself as a servant or minister of God. And so here is where there's another mystery that is revealed about our purpose and meaning in life, one of the main ones, anyways. Paul is saying one of the mysteries that the cross reveals to us is that God no longer wants it to be a mystery. For you to know in your life, when he redeemed you, when he redeemed me, he set us apart to become ministers of his gospel of grace, servants of his gospel of grace. In other places, Paul uses the language of ambassadors, right? In the gospels, Jesus gives us this great commission in the gospel of John. He tells us to go, right, into the nations. There are th th This idea of serving or ministering on behalf of God is a, is a key idea in what it means to be a, a follower of God. And there are three, I'll be brief here this morning, but there are three very pointed things I want to share here. There are three important things we need to know about what it means to be and serve as a minister of the gospel. Because the last thing I want you to do leaving here is thinking that the only way a person serves or is a minister of the gospel is if you do what I do. 
I am a minister of the gospel. And in the same way, you are meant to be a minister of the gospel. I want to demystify this. First thing I want to say is this. Doing the work of the ministry. Three key ideas about the ministry. Doing the work of the ministry is not a gift we give to God. We need to identify this clearly. Rather, it is a gift that he gives to us. And a lot of people cross this up. And if you cross this up, you'll likely be proud. You will likely have a a less than noble uh, motivation for why you serve God. Generally, when we think of serving God, it is common for people to see their work as a gift they give to God or even an obligation they fulfill for God because he saved them. It's sort of like a, a scale of economy. And people say, well, God has done this for me. I now need to do this for him. Now, listen, that word need is a good word. And depending on your heart, it can be a good word. But the idea is a little bit different than what we're talking about here. For some, it becomes a form of, of penance. There's a, a, a kind of a warped understanding of why we, we labor for Jesus. But Paul says here that this is wrong. And we need to see our ministry sort of like the same way we see our salvation. In fact, I would say like the same way we see our salvation. I have a whole, a whole uh, sermon on this at the beginning of this series in Philippians. Our salvation is a pure gift from God. He has allowed us to participate in. And there are two sides to that. God gives you the gift of grace. But then we have to live in such a way that we actually walk worthy of the calling of that grace. It's like we contribute, not contribute to the grace, but, but we shepherd or care for the field of our hearts that God has given us. Through some of the things we're talking about here today. The same is true when it comes to, to ministry. It is a gift from God that God invites us into and allows us to participate in. And the idea behind this is that doing the work of the ministry is actually a privileged responsibility God grants to those who love him and know him. It is not a duty. It's not an obligation. It's not a hobby. It's actually something that is meant to be in the DNA of our Christianity. And so understanding your spiritual gift and the ministry God has given you like this will dictate a lot of things. The biggest is whether your heart sees the work of the ministry as we are called to, as a joyful service or an unwelcome burden. You're going to see it one of two ways. Because it reminds us that the working part of our faith, serving God, first and foremost, is anything but a favor for or obligation we have uh, to God. Rather, all ministry is another expression of God's loving grace in your life. All of it is. It's another place that he lets us participate with him. It is a gift that he invites us to be a part of. And when we deny this reality in our lives, we miss part of what it means to know Jesus. I wasn't crying there. I just had a little throat bump, okay? We miss identifying with the part of his life that found joy in serving others. Think about this in all circumstances. In Jesus' life, ministering for the sake of others is something that he does faithfully and well. And if we do not participate in that rhythm, then what happens is we've thrown the mystery switch in an area of our lives. There's a part of Jesus' life we won't resonate with because it still remains steeped a mystery, a, a mystery steeped in our own lives. It's a blissful mystery because it's very convenient to just be loved by God but not love others for God. But nonetheless, it's a mystery that might be blissful now, but in the long run really causes you to miss a piece of God that is just incredibly important. I want to say something else here. While this passage is applicable to every Christian, it is especially applicable to those of you deeply engaged in ministry right now. Those of you really laboring hand in hand with others for Jesus. Because it's very common for people engaged in consistent ministry. And keep in mind, when I say ministry, that, is, that word is so broad in my mind right now. What I mean here is anything you do in this room, in the rooms next to this room, in your workplace, in your social circles, 
anything you do in your natural sphere of influence that helps people experience and know Jesus is ministry. There are some super traditional ways we do that. This is a good example of that. And then there are some ways that unfortunately we haven't even considered ministry over the last decades that actually are. The way you labor for God in places that, that we will never be able to go because God's given you a specific responsibility there. So what happens is it's very common in all these areas for the relentless pressure often associated with ministry. If you're doing structured ministry, things like, things like scheduling, recruiting, you know, training workers. Uh, if, you're, if you just have a big shepherd's heart, counseling wounded hearts, dealing with conflict, and just the general nature of serving people, serving other people, it really can quickly frustrate and fatigue the heart. I mean, we even see this in Jesus. There are seasons where he kind of, uh, he very regularly stays filled up by his Father in heaven so he can stay on the mission. It's the truth in that we should learn. At least for two of you, that's the truth you want to learn, right? <laughs> and if you ever felt this way, you must listen to what Paul is. I just got to say something. This is like an amen side heavy of the room. What's up with this side of the room here? Like, are you deaf over here? Can you not see me? Like, should I just come over here and be like, say amen a lot, whatever you are. <clears throat> Let's liven it up a little bit. I know you're hungry. We're almost done. Amen. <laughs> I do like turkey subs. I'm just saying, right? So if you've ever felt this way, you have to listen to what Paul's saying here, right? Ministry can be difficult. And it can be tiring. But like Jesus, your ministry, no matter how difficult it can get, must always be seen as a gift from God. That is ultimately what it is. Because Paul knew this firsthand. And I say this because somewhat ironically, the same place he's writing from in Philippians is the same place he's writing from in Ephesians. Paul's writing from a prison cell. He's encouraging us to be joyful in the Lord and know Jesus and love him well, not while he is sitting in an air-conditioned room. He's sitting in a prison cell. He's being persecuted for the same gospel he's calling us to minister for. Yet despite his trials, every verse he writes is saturated with this gospel confidence and a joyful heart. I'm not being naive to the reality of what he's going through, but in God's grace, he's pressing through that. Why? Because the mystery of serving was no longer a mystery to him. In this area of life, we have an example in him. God invites him to experience the promises of his grace. And Paul takes God up on that. He's so moved by the reality that he is compelled, often at great risk to his own life, to serve others like Jesus serves him. And many of you in this room do the same thing. This is not just a Paul thing. We have a really stellar record of people serving people here, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm here to encourage that, not to condemn it, or not to say that it's not happening, but more to say it's an attitude we want to safeguard. He presses on because he knows the ministry and the trials associated with it. It truly is a privilege of the gospel. And so when you see your ministry this way, you will begin to understand it as a gift. And I leave you with a question here. Ask yourself this morning, are you faithfully and meaningfully ministering to others like Jesus first ministered to you? Many of you are, but I'm going to take a guess in a room this side that maybe some of you are not. And this might be a good opportunity to ask why that's still a mystery in your life. God has made you a minister, a servant of his gospel. And we're here to help you with that. If you don't know what that means or what that looks like, let us know in those cards. We'll help you process that. But before we can process anything, you have to affirm this in your heart. God wants to use you. He wants you to know him, and he wants to use you. Secondly, Paul says, I want to be emphatic here, every Christian is a minister of the gospel. In our modern professional church culture, it's become the norm to read passages like this and assume that words like servant or minister are talking about people called into vocational ministry, like pastors, church staff, missionaries, that kind of stuff. And while passages like this certainly affirm that, I'm not undermining that at all. I mean, this is an equal playing ground here. While passages like this certainly affirm that, 
and include those offices, our modern church culture at times has done a great disservice to these teachings by limiting them to that. That's the warning I want to issue today. It's, it's an all of the above here. And how you might be asking, well, if we only see the ministry as something that a handful of people do, like what I said earlier, it's a mystery only reserved for a spiritual elite. That's not what the ministry is. Doing so creates a tragic church philosophy of ministry where God's people become demobilized. In other words, you, the, God says the army I want to use to move the kingdom forward is all of you. But what happens is we don't free people for that. And over time, that begins to devalue the purpose you have in life for God. And while those whom are, are called to lead the church in whatever capacity that means, what happens is the, the imbalance here is that they start getting set up for failure. It creates a really unrealistic expectation that nearly kills a person. So, for example, if I were to say at Restoration, if you want to see the cumulative effect of who we are, you just have to look at our major holidays. It's about 150-something people connected to Restoration. They're not here every Sunday, but they're here a lot. And if I were to say six of you, we have six ministry leaders in our church, six of you got to make this whole thing work, we would all fall apart and be Mormons next week. That's what would happen, right? It's not even realistic or possible. It would completely wreck us. It's not possible. But if I were to say that, listen, our role as, as leaders, those who love God, is to help people understand their God-given purpose in life, then what happens is that begins to change the lay of the land. We're no longer set up for individual failure. We're actually set up to make disciples. And when we start making disciples, something funny happens. Other disciples start making disciples. And then what happens is that demobilized people of God, they become like a wave of, of complete energy. Like it's a tsunami that God starts to use to do some pretty powerful things. It might surprise you to know, I'm just gonna, I want to get this out of here, but it might surprise you to know that in vocational ministry, and anything I'm saying regarding vocational ministry, I want to parallel to ministry in general. It has now, it wasn't like this about 20 or 30 years ago, but I think our fast-paced culture has given it one of the highest burnout and depression rates in the country. This is fact. You can look this up. And it's been steadily growing at an alarming rate. So um, in my first uh, season of seminary, I'll never forget in my orientation, uh, one of our deans, uh, who actually became a good friend of mine over the years, he opened his like, you know, salutation to us by saying, listen, for those of you students in this room who actually graduate, uh, the majority of you are not going to be in ministry vocational ministry within five years from the day you receive your diploma. And that is a really sad but true statement um, due to the relentless and often surprising pressures associated with ministry. I don't think any of us believed him, but he was spot on. And the New York Times has written kind of on this. There's actually a lot of interesting writing today. If you want to talk about uh, ministerial stamina, there is a ton of really good stuff surfacing because I think what's happening is People who are trying to serve God faithfully are recognizing there's a constant pressure in our lives to, to do more and to be busier. And it's not a matter in the Christian faith of doing more and being busier as much as it is a matter of being focused and intentional in what we do. It's almost like a less is more philosophy. But nonetheless, in this, this middle ground, there is a lot of tension. And the article in the New York Times highlighted how one of the modern demands of the pastorate, which has historically been known as a vocation with high longevity rates, uh, uh, and, and super levels of, uh, excuse me, of satisfaction. There's no hidden commentary here. I'm good to go. You just need to know that here. But what I'm saying here is the longevity rates are shortening. Burnout and fatigue and quitting is becoming uh, a real issue. And I would be fibbing if I didn't say there were not seasons in my life that were like that. But I guess what I want to say here is, while right now I'm talking about pastors, this is a reality not limited to just pastors because we're not just talking about ministers in the traditional sense. This is a reality that every servant of God must be mindful of because we are all in this together, laboring in different ways. 
And one of the contributing factors to this is, is what Paul is trying to correct here. He's saying contrary to popular belief, God, God doesn't give any single person, a pastor, a church leader, a super committed lay person, a Christian, any single person, the sole responsibility of doing the work of the ministry. What he says is he gives us all the responsibility of doing the work of the ministry. And so Christianity, I like to say it this way, it is a team sport. It is a multitude of diverse people united in a common love for God, all exercising their gifts and abilities as ministers in the way that God has gifted you. He's given you a gift for this. You are all ministers. That's what I want you to leave here with today. And I also want you to know, just so that we breed a little bit of hope into this, or at least more hope, that by the grace of God, this unhealthy philosophy is actually being reversed, slowly but surely being corrected. It's a really good thing to see. I can't speak for, the, you know, for Christianity around the globe, but I can speak for Christianity in our two partnerships and with the EFCA and our Acts 29 partnerships. This is a keen thing we're dealing with. And it's really good to see that the churches we are networked with, the churches, our, our sister churches trying to do the same thing we're doing, our partnerships are seeing a renewed vigor in the biblical belief that every person in Jesus is set apart to be a minister of God's gospel. There's a beautiful truth there. And if you don't believe me, I'll leave you with 1 Peter 4.10. He puts it this way. Each of you, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And what it highlights here is that we're all different. We all do different things. We have different emphasis points, nuances, strengths. But God's given us this for a reason. He's all made us a way, wired us a certain way, so that cumulatively we are the people of God. And together we are perfect, is what you might say. Individually we're broken. But as a body, when we get together, we have this, this profound ability to minister healthily in the way that Jesus does because we're all relying on each other. And so if you're a recipient of God's grace on the cross in this place today, but you have yet to return this gift to him by ministering to others. Keep that in mind. It's a gift given to you. And serving Jesus is really a gift in your own life. If you have yet to press into that gift by ministering to others, I want to ask you why that is the case. Ask yourself if there's some mystery in your life here. I want to challenge you to identify what the gift is that God has given you. And listen, if you don't know what that gift is, I'll say it again. You can let us know on that connection card this morning. We will help you understand that. We, there are ways we can you know, diagnose, if you will, in a healthy sense, who God has made you. And most likely, it's going to be just taking a keen look at who you are and what you're already doing. You very likely are going to know more about your gift than you might give yourself credit for right now if you don't know. But if you don't know, and this is a mystery, let us help you light, light that up, okay? Thirdly and lastly, we're reminded that those who minister for the gospel should expect it to be joyful, but also challenging work at times. This goes both ways. It's a joy, but it's also challenging. Now, in Western culture, we've been led to believe that hardship is supposed to be an exception to the rule of life. I've talked about this regularly rather than just a part of life. You know, the first time I saw this, I'll never forget, I've always been into film and media, just because I think it's, it's like our world telling a story about what they value. If you ever want to know what's going on in the world, just look at what's shown in a movie theater like this. You'll get a good, a good survey of what people are, what matters to people. But I got into this years ago, because um, I had too much free time on my hand. I got into Asian film, like uh, all this old school, like Japanese stuff. And it was really cool. And then I got into, you know, I was just like shifting across the continent and I got into these really cool old school, like Chinese martial art films. And they were films though, that were not just like, you know, old school films. They were films that were telling the story. And I noticed that something was so dogmatically true in everything that I watched. At the end of every story, it was always sad. Like I was watching these things, like the hero dies, the girl doesn't get the guy, the horse falls off the cliff, and you watch these movies, and you're just like, where's the hope? Where's, where? it, it wasn't there. Now you contrast that with the majority of Western film, and that's not how it is. 
It's the John Wayne thing. The guy gets the girl, the horse, and he builds a wall around the cliff so nobody ever falls off it again, right? That's what happens. And so it was a polar contrast to me about the differences in the way people see life. And having traveled the globe several places, uh, you can see that there's differing philosophies on this. And in the American way, where we always win, optimism tends to rule the day. And so hear me, hardship is sometimes very hard for us to deal with because we think we're not supposed to ever have it in our lives. We see it as an exception to the rule of life rather than just a part of life. Now, I'm not trying to be pessimistic here. Rather, I just want us to rethink the cultural assumption that every person is supposed to be guaranteed a happy ending in life and every outcome. You know, Jesus' life really forces us to rethink the if you do good and work hard, everything's going to work out and be fine philosophy. That can be very true, but sometimes it's not as true as we would like it to be. And believing this when it comes to our embracing our roles as a minister of the gospel has the potential to ruin us when we do face trial in life or in ministry. And if you've ever been overseas, I'll say it again, you have likely seen a great majority of the world, they just see hardship as part of life. It's not overly emphasized or underemphasized. It is, it is a common rhythm they have learned to deal with. And not an easy rhythm, but a rhythm. This seems to be extremely true, at least kicking against this in Western Christianity. Because we do have this idea that if we just keep doing good, we're going to be granted a diplomatic immunity from trial. And that's not always the case. However, when we remove ourselves from our cultural understanding of hardship and we immerse ourselves in the biblical perspective, when we let God demystify trial, we quickly learn that we're told to expect it and be prepared for it, especially when you heed the call to be a minister of the gospel. And there's a great example of this that we're looking at this morning. It's Paul himself. We've already identified that he's writing this letter to you and I while he's sitting in prison. And keep in mind, he, he's not locked up now because he was like running Ponzi schemes in Rome. This is not why he's in jail. He got locked up because he was actually serving Jesus. He took seriously his own teaching, and he was actively engaged in the work of God. Now, the common wisdom of our day says, obey God and good things happen to you. And I actually do believe that's a true statement, emphatically true. But I guess there's one qualifier I'll leave you with this morning. Your understanding of good, that all depends on how you define good things, right? Scripture teaches us God is always good to us and always working in our lives. And in Paul's life, you have to sort of see this as good. That's why I think he's writing it with encouragement and not, not pessimism. Our understanding of suffering and trial and hardship is really rooted to our understanding of God's goodness in our life. Because in Paul's life and in many of our lives, God, God has this uncanny knack for doing some of his greatest work in our hearts during what seem to be the most difficult times in our lives. And this is a church where you can say amen to that. Let's be honest, right? Sometimes when it is most hard, we sense God in ways that are, mo that are most real. That's why there can be a goodness in this. If we, if we let God be known in those moments, we will grow in God. And in Paul's case, he's using him to write the scripture. We benefit from Paul's suffering. To Paul's credit, He's, he tells us we should benefit from this. In verse 13, we, again, we didn't look at this, but he says, listen, guys, don't be discouraged because of my suffering for the people of God because he knows God's going to redeem this. And this very moment is a perfect example of why. God's still using his situation to benefit other men and women in the kingdom. And God uses all of our situations, our ministry, for the same thing. It might not be in this exact format, but I guarantee you, if you're faithful to Jesus today, 20, 30, 40, 50 years on the road, somebody's going to be telling the same story about your life. Why? Because God wants to use your life. He wants to use you. And so you see all God's great servants, they have this ethic in their hearts. They drip with the reality that grace compels action. They know the cross is what first compels your heart to believe and to become a servant of the gospel. And it is what will keep you true to the work when the times get tough. 
So this week, let's remember, God's grace on the cross is a gift that carries with it great responsibility. It is a gift you've been called to labor for and share with others. Far beyond Easter Sunday. Easter plus one. So if you're already ministering, be encouraged and ask God to deepen your desire to ministry. Ask him to give you strength as you ministry, minister. If you want to know how you can become a minister for Jesus and serve him at restoration and your natural spheres of influence outside of this place, please do not hesitate. Let us know that on that card this morning. Get in touch with us some way. But if God's working in your heart now, I would encourage you to act now. Ask the question now. And if you've yet to receive God's grace, if you're here saying, man, this stuff sounds amazing, but I don't even know what it is. I just would like to see what it is. If you do not know Jesus or you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, uh, trust and believe in his promises for your life. He wants, to, he wants to know you, and he wants you to know him. Remember, with the great, with the great power of the gospel comes a great responsibility. And so ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you when it comes to his grace and the responsibility we have in light of it, and what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, an interesting day. You know, here we are a week out from Easter, and in the first century world, uh, there was probably a very different attitude going on right now. You know, people are, uh, the word of Jesus' resurrection is spreading. There are probably still people who do not know that he is, he is back. And what, what an interesting dynamic that takes place in the first century world. But there's an interesting dynamic, a parallel, because this is truly the same reality we, ex we deal with in our modern world. There are still people today who, who have heard he's here and they don't believe him. There are people who are looking at him and can't trust him. There are people who are looking at him and trust him deeply. And folks who have yet to hear the kind of goodness and the grace that we speak about this morning. And so I pray, Lord, this morning that you would drive our hearts to know you and to love you more deeply. And that you would drive our hearts, God, to recognize you have set us apart to minister for your goodness and your grace. Your gospel is in us and you want us to share it with people. I pray, Lord, we would be encouraged this morning. And we would take now these next couple of moments in response to think, to pray, and to process um, who you are and what you have done for us. May that shape who we are and what we do for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.